And if you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, you can use a pew Bible you can find somewhere in front of you. And Luke 24 can be found on page 884. Uh, well, this past week, we had some of my wife's family visiting from Wisconsin, her mom and her sister and a couple of her sons' boys. And, uh, so, and then our kids were also on spring break. And so we were mapping out our week, you know, different activities they wanted to do. And, you know, at one point, Rochelle, kind of in the midst of conversation, was like, all right, Aaron, I, w- I want to make sure that you have, like, the amount of, right, right amount of time, kind of a big Sunday coming up here for you to, for, for sermon prep. And without missing a beat, her sister says, oh, please, anyone can preach on Easter. It's the same sermon every year. <laughs> and she said that with sincerity, strong believer, like, don't try to get cute about it, all right? Just put on your bright, short, bright shirt and preach the resurrection. And so I'm halfway there this morning, all right? And I got halfway uh, to go. But it did get me thinking um, that, it, you know, it, it would be a problem to go to a church that did not preach about the resurrection on Easter. Uh, but here's the thing. I think it would also be a problem, I think this is even a bigger problem, more common problem, for churches that preach the resurrection only on Easter. And it's kind of, tis the season, and the resurrection comes out of the box, and then we finish Easter Sunday, we put the bright shirt back in the closet for next year, and the resurrection, and the implications of the resurrection goes back in the box with it. Well, if Christian belief was a game of Jenga, you know the game of Jenga? I know you do. <laughs> the Bible is clear that the resurrection is the one piece of Christian belief that you can't take out and leave everything else left standing. Paul even wrote in a, church, as a letter that he wrote that if Christ has not been raised, our preaching's in vain, our lives are meaningless. And so the passage we're about to read in Luke 24, this is the Jenga piece. This is the passage that every other passage rests upon. I'm going to read Luke 24, 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. There was an old comic strip called Calvin and Hobbes. And it's a comic that began in the 1950s. It finished its run in the 1990s, but still lives on. And we have a picture of Calvin and Hobbes. Maybe that is familiar to you, maybe older generations, reading the Sunday paper. It follows six-year-old Calvin and his best friend, a tiger named Hobbes. And when other people were around, Hobbes was just a stuffed animal. He was a toy. 
But when it was just the two of them, Hobbes is a real live tiger and is Calvin's best friend. And they have all these adventures together. They have conversations that are both deep and funny. But once someone else shows up, Hobbes turns into a lifeless stuffed animal once again. There's an author, Sam Albury, who said that this comic illustrates how many people feel about Jesus and the resurrection. Maybe you can resonate with that. That in your own private context, or maybe especially on Easter Sunday, Jesus is alive, and he's real, and he really did rise from the dead. But out in the quote-unquote real world, out in public, out in your everyday lives, it can feel conspicuously unreal. It can feel strangely difficult at how that relates to the rest of your life. So how are our lives impacted by the resurrection? Why is it that we should not only preach resurrection on Easter? Well, we got to go quick this morning. We can only scratch the surface out of Luke 24. But I wanted to share three things. This is not everything, but three things that the very real resurrection impacts our very real lives. And number one, it gives assurance It gives assurance. Uh, When these women were heading to the tomb, Luke implies they were searching for a dead body uh, because they were taking the spices they had prepared. And the custom of the day was to pour spices over a body to counteract the odor of decay. And it served as a symbolic expression of love and devotion towards someone to pour spices over their dead body. But but the point remains, they, they were not going to the tomb in hopes of seeing Jesus alive. They were searching for a body. And they get there, and to their dismay, the boulder is gone. And they go into the tomb, and to their dismay, the body is gone. And just to show how much they weren't expecting this, their mind still did not go to resurrection. Their mind, another gospel tells us, that they thought the the body was stolen. Someone stole the body. And that's when Luke says these two men show up. Later in Luke 24, he'll reveal that these men are angels. And they turn their world upside down with one question. The best questions are the, way, are the ones that both correct and announce. Like there's nothing better than just a well-placed question to make a point. And this is a correction of unbelief and an announcement of assurance. Here's the question. It's the best question in the Bible. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. If your Bibles are still open, just look at that line. Like, like, you want to talk Jenga? That's the Jenga piece right there. Everything else in your Bible. If that's not true, throw it all away. If that's not true, go home. That's the piece. It all rides on that. For every single person in the history of the world, the burial is the final step. You live and you die and you're buried and it's over and it's done. There's no more to the story until now. You see, there's a new story that has emerged. And not only does it change everything about the future, it gives purpose to everything in the past. All of history even even looked towards or looks back towards this weekend, Good Friday, leading to Easter Sunday. And what this reveals, what this gives assurance of, is that the purpose of his death on Friday is seen in his resurrection on Sunday. So here's a question for you. What assurance do you have that his death on a cross was sufficient in covering your sin? If you profess to be a believer, what assurance do you have? I'm talking real assurance. Like go to bed at night 
and know that your sins are forgiven, what assurance do you have? Can you have it? Like, really have it? The answer is yes. And the answer, not a answer, is because he is risen. Like right now, as we stand today, on April 9, 2023, Jesus is as alive now as he was on that first day of the week 2,000 years ago. And we need it. We want to talk about relatable to our everyday lives. Uh, I, I always think about, I love history. I always think about how future generations will look back and write about this age. Like what will the textbooks be writing about? What will the blogs and the podcasts be talking about? The 2010s and 20s in this country? How will they describe it? How will our future generations, our children's 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 children be reading about us? You know, there's a phrase that has emerged in recent years that seems compelling, that this will be known as the anxious age. And that reality gains momentum with every new study that comes out regarding the rise in anxiety in all ages. And I just can't help but think that future generations are going to look back and go, man, the rise of technology, the rise of comfortable living, the, the rise of modern living and postmodern living, how could they not see the direct correlation between this kind of rise in comfortable living and the rise in anxiety? Did they not see it? The assurance that we thought we'd have, the assurance that we're constantly searching for in the anxious age, to be just, we, we need assurance. We need somewhere to put our feet, somewhere to grab hold on to. And we're seeing it, how this modern age has a nasty side effect, especially for younger generations, the rise of anxiety. And we see anxiety everywhere, but if you peel back the onion on anxiety, you find this common core that there's an angst about death. There's an angst about things ending, the potential that they might end. And the grief and angst that we feel when we confront death provides evidence that death is unnatural. You ever thought about that? Like, like why is that? Why is it that deep down we feel like the death of, of loved ones or, 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 or so-called innocent people is something that we, we weren't intended to have to go through, that, that this feels wrong, it feels off? Why does death feel unnatural? The answer is simpler than you think. The answer is because we weren't meant to go through it. And there's a new story that fulfills God's intent for the universe, that death is finished in Christ. And the cross says that he died the death that we deserved, and the empty tomb gives the assurance, like real assurance, that for those who believe in him, we'll never taste it in full. Pastor Chad Scruggs, pastor down in Nashville, He's one of the ones who lost his nine-year-old daughter in the senseless tragedy a couple weeks ago. And maybe you saw this the day after he passed. He was, um, you know, the, the media, I imagine, was after him to get a statement from him or from the church. Can we get a statement? I imagine the last thing Chad wanted to do was to give a stupid statement. But he gave one line. Did you see the line? What's the one thing he's going to say to the world the day after his nine-year-old died? be up on the screen. He says, through tears, we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her to life once again. The very real resurrection 
gives us very real assurance that we are forgiven by our Father through the Son. Because he rose, we will rise. That's number one. The second way the resurrection relates to our lives is transformation. Transformation. Here's the thing that doesn't get said enough. Here's the thing that doesn't get admitted enough, especially by pastors, especially on Easter Sunday. The resurrection is hard to believe in. It's hard to believe in. That comes across in the Gospels so clearly, I think especially in Luke. The women went with spices for a dead body. And you know what? The men didn't even bother to show up. It was so outside the bounds of possibility for them that even after Jesus told them this was going to happen, they didn't even show up. Uh, Perhaps you've heard it said before, maybe you've even said this yourself, that if, if I was alive when Jesus was on earth, if I was there and I could see it in person, it would be so much more believable. Like, why can't we see him like they saw him? Why can't we hear him like they heard him? It seems just so much far-fetched now. I'm living my life, and I see this thing that you're claiming, and I just don't see how it relates. I don't see how I could believe. The gospel tells us that the reality is even those who were there couldn't believe it either. They were listening but not hearing. They were noticing but not seeing. And the reason... Why that's the case then and now is, that beca- is, is because it requires a work of grace. It's not a blind leap of faith. It's not a skill to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It's not a matter of willpower. It's not a coping mechanism. It's a work of grace that provides a gift of faith for you to believe. It requires a miracle. It's a miracle that Jesus was raised from the grave. And it takes a miracle for you to believe it. Without this work of grace, you will be left to believe in another story of the world. There's another way you're going to look about the world. There's another way that you're going to look for assurance. You'll be left to worship another God, even if you don't call that thing your God. But the difference between the God of the Bible and all other gods in the world is that while other gods command, you sacrifice it all for them, and and it leads to bondage. Other gods in this world say, "Sacrifice, sacrifice it all for me. You sacrifice it for me, and it leads to bondage. Here's the beauty of Easter. The God of the Bible sacrificed it all for you, and it leads to freedom. And there's no other story of the world that makes that claim. Uh, quickly, back to Calvin and Hobbes. There was a strip on May 6, 1986. Maybe you read it on the day. And we have it up on the screen. Hobbes asks six-year-old Calvin, do you believe there is a God? Calvin pauses and says, well, somebody's out to get me. The true feeling of paranoia we all have, that this world's out to get us, something's out to get me. And the truth that even is beyond probably the author's intent here is that the cross says, you don't find your way to Jesus. You can't. He has found his way to you. And the resurrection says that he was who he said he was. And he invites you to rise with him. You could say, yeah, he's out to get you. 
The belief in Jesus Christ is, is faith. But here's the second point of transformation. The belief is faith. The evidence is noticeable. The belief is in the eternal. The evidence is in the daily. The belief of, in Jesus Christ is the, is, leads to a transformation that serves as the most um, um, significant sign that this is real. Not a perfect life, a transformed life. In Luke 24, the disciples are, disciples are wallowing in defeat. They fled from Jesus when the going got tough. They abandoned him in his darkest hour. They walked from, with him for three years, stood by his side and for three years. And the darkest hour, the most crucial point, they're gone. Out of fear. Then the resurrection happens. And on the other side of it, these men and women would eventually believe in Jesus Christ and their lives take off. And if you just kept the pages turning in your Bible and you went from Luke and you went to John and you start reading in the book of Acts, which is written by Luke, by Luke, you see these men and women are now fearless and they are bold and they're living for the glory of God and they're spreading the gospel and they're staring down persecution to the point of death and the church explodes in growth. How do you explain that? Here's how we explain it. That spiritually, when you repent of sin and you surrender the old story of saving yourself and you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you receive the new story of being saved by him, a complete renovation takes place in your heart. And the primary reason why people don't believe in the resurrected Savior is that they don't think they are in need of saving or, hang with me, they think they are beyond the realm of saving. They think they, they don't need it or that they're beyond hope for it. And the problem is when we think our lives don't need full renovation. They just need a little straightening up. So I imagine across this room, many of you people are going to have people coming over to your house today, yeah? Uh, you're going to have family and some friends, and I imagine this whole past week, if not longer, leading up to the very second you walked out do the door this morning, you were straightening up your house. We're, we're, we're straightening up, right? We, we want to make sure the clutter is away. There's never any clutter in our house. We're, you're, you're, you were fixing the pillows on the couch before you came to church this morning, wiping down the bathroom, because you want your home to look nice. Nothing wrong with that. But many people use Jesus as a means to straighten up their lives. They want to be a better person. Nothing wrong with that. They want to be a little more generous and kind. They want a stable mindset through the chaos. They're getting older. They can't do things like they used to. They got kids now. I got I to gotta be a little more stable, a little more nice. Jesus can help me look nice. The problem is what we need is not a straightening up but a complete renovation. And the resurrection does not declare it makes bad people good. It makes dead people alive. And that work of grace is two-toned. It's the grace to see the magnitude of sin and how it deadens us to the things of God. It deadens us to the things of God. We're dead to it. It does nothing to us. And then second is to see the gift of Jesus Christ who died for our sins on the cross, who paid in full the ransom, and who rose again declaring victory. Uh, Ray Ortland said, the antidote to our deadness to God's grace is more grace. 
practically, what's it look like? All right, you talk about what happens in my heart. What's this look like in my day-to-day? How does the resurrection apply to my life every day? Let me share one thing here about transformation. Look down to verse 6. The angel said to the women, remember. Remember that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Verse 8, it says, and they remembered his words. Like this is the key. It's simpler than you think. Applying the resurrection to your life is fighting the fight to remember what he has done. That before transformation is a list of things that you got to do to be better, it is fighting to remember what he has done every single day. We remember his words. We apply it to our lives. And we go to sleep tonight, and if the Lord finds it fit to wake us up in the morning, we wake up and we remember again. Samuel Ward, a Puritan preacher, said this in a sermon in the 1600s. He said, do not even let a part of the day pass without contemplating Christ. Your soul deserves to have her breakfasts and her lunches and dinners and snacks and desserts as well as your body. I just love that they had snacks in the 1600s, all right? It just affirms that, and our body and our soul needs it too. All right, we got to keep going. Third reason that this resurrection matters to your life is mission. It fuels your mission. The right mission. The resurrection was a pronouncement that kicked off the final stage of redemptive history, and we're still in it. The mission to make disciples of all nations. Fulfilling the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 15, the first book of the Bible, that through his family line, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the cross was of central importance to the mission, but it was not the final chapter. Uh, Preacher Dr. Tony Evans said this regarding Christ's final words on the cross. I love it. He says, on the cross, Jesus didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. He was just getting started. And arising from the dead, the mission of God would go forth through the church And Peter's experience was a foretaste of what was to come. Those final verses we read, we saw he, along with the other men, initially didn't believe the women. Nobody rises from the dead. But Peter, if you know his story, you know he's the disciple who had fallen the hardest. Because he's the one who had walked with Jesus the closest He's the one who claimed that would never abandon him, Jesus. Even if everyone else is gone, it's me and you, Jesus. And then at the darkest hour, Peter denied him. Not once, not twice, three times. So even if Peter did not believe it to be true, do you see it here? Do you see what what led to his actions? He wanted to believe it. He didn't believe it, but he wanted to believe it. He didn't believe it, but he wanted to believe it. Even if 1% of him wanted to believe it. It was enough to send him to the tomb, to put him on a search for this new story. It's hard to believe in the resurrection. But if it's even 1% possibility that it will free me from the old story of shame and defeat that I am stuck in, I'm going for it. And he ran to the tomb, and he saw it was empty. And we see in due time, his searching would change to marveling, and his marveling would change to believing, and that believing would light the flame of mission in his heart that would never be put out. And now every aspect of his life, you want to talk about relevance, every aspect of his life is looked through the lens of making him known. He is risen. 
And now this is my mission. And that proclamation that the angel said to the women would be echoed throughout time and space. The irresistible power of the Spirit to bring people from death to life would reverberate from here, from house to house, from city to city, coast to coast, country to country, to the ends of the earth. And that mission is still going. That flame is still lit. And now you're invited into the story to not just believe, but join the story. Join the mission. And see how he'll use you. Let me close with this. The resurrection of Jesus matters because it kicked off the final act in history. If you're at a restaurant or you're at a bar late at night, chances are at some point you'll hear someone call, final call. And what that means is that the staff is getting ready to close up. So if you want anything, order now. I have memories of growing up, uh, going to Camp Spofford in New Hampshire, where our family still goes every year. At Camp Spofford, it's a place called Knuts. It's a Norwegian word, don't ask questions, all right? It's called Knuts, and it's open at night. You can get ice cream, play games, fried food, milkshakes, all the healthy stuff. If you're at Knuts late enough at Camp Spofford, eventually you'll hear, final call, the kitchen is closing in 15 minutes. What they're saying for everyone to hear is, it's time to make a decision. The opportunity is there, but it won't be here for long. And I remember as a kid, anytime I'd be up that late, I'd go panic, like, oh no, final call. And most of the time, I'd look at my parents, they'd be like, Aaron, you've eaten like three times already. You're good. But occasionally, especially as I got older, there'd be nights where I'd been so busy playing games so busy talking to people that I never got around to putting an order in. And through the evening, I would look up and see other people ordering, see other people eating and drinking, but I hadn't gotten up from my seat yet. And now is the time. When the father raised the son to life, he proclaimed, final call. And we are in the final stage of redemptive history And the Bible says a thousand years to God is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. And what he said when he emptied that grave is that the opportunity to believe and to know him is there, but it won't be here forever. And I know that some of you have been delaying, too busy pursuing other things, prioritizing other things. And from time to time, like, I don't know, on Easter Sunday, you might look up and see other people following Jesus, singing to Jesus, but you haven't gotten up off your seat yet. Now is the time to accept the invitation to a new story, to experience the assurance of forgiveness, the transformation of new life, and to join the mission of God who's restoring all things to himself. Now is the time. Let's pray. If you're sitting there and you feel like that that story is describing your story, that you've been busy doing other things, let me invite you and lead you to not waste this moment. To pray, Father, in the past I have known about you. I have known of you, 
But in my heart, I know that I've never known you, truly known you. I confess to living in a different story. I confess of walking away from your story long ago and pursuing other things. I confess of sinning against you and not living for you. And Father, the freedom of repentance, Father, I repent of my sin. And I put my trust in you for the forgiveness of sins. Father, I trust in the resurrection. That you rose from the grave. You declared victory over sin. And I commit to follow you all days of my life. Father, it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.